Hello everybody, Randy here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk about Roback Activewear. Roback has been gaining traction big time. We love the fit and feel of their gear. I want to talk to you about three specific items in their catalog. The first is their performance polos. They fit so much better than your typical boxy polos. From fire prints to classic stripes, simple solids, they have it all. Polo has a four-way stretch material, which is next level. It's wrinkle-free. The collars never lose their shape. Combine all of that, and it's why the rowback polos are unmatched. The second thing are their performance quarter zips. Total game changer when it comes to spring golf. They're soft, perfect for a crisp early morning, 18, even a run around the block, a day in the office, a night out. Truly the definition of versatile. And then third, last but not least, their performance hoodies are legitimately the most comfortable hoodies we've worn on the course and off. Hands down the softest, stretchiest hoodie in golf. These things are just asking to be worn out on the links. Hopefully you've seen the Roback logo around. It's the subtle dog logo. Next time you see somebody wearing it, give them a little nod. And right now, listeners, I urge you to check out the Roback gear you could go to roback.com. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. Use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, at checkout for a generous 20% off your first order. That's spelled roback, R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off all polos, quarter zips, hoodies, and tees with code TRAP. Trust us when we say you can't beat Roback. Check them out now. Thank them for sponsoring the trap draw, and now into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Trap Draw podcast. My name is Randy, and I have a couple of guests, neither of whom are TC Tron Carter, but in fact, one of them is my other associate. He's a, he's a recurring member participant on the Trap Draw, and that is DJ Pihowski. Mr. Pihowski, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great, Randy. Thrilled to be back. As many people know, Tron has been is very vocally, publicly anti-music. Uh, just, <laughs> just hates hates music. So he was not a good fit for this podcast. So I'm happy to step in. Uh, thrilled to be with you. Awesome. And uh, that that laughter you heard is none other than Mr. Ben Rector. Ben um, has a new album out, "The Joy of Music," and uh, we I'll, I'll throw it to DJ here in just a second, but but Ben's a, a good friend of ours in real life. We've gotten to know him through the golf world. He's an exceptional golfer. And um, we wanted to explore, I, I think, the craft of making music and obviously talking about his new album as well. So, DJ, does that sound about... Uh, actually, before I throw it to you, DJ, hello, Ben. How hello. are you today? Hello, Randy. I'm, I'm so good, and I'm so glad to be here uh, amongst friends, getting to talk. This is, a, this is a real treat for me. Well, thank you for making time. Uh, yeah, so DJ, does that sound about right? I, I kind of want to toss it to you here, give you the ball, and, and almost let you host the rest of the way. 
Sure. That sounds great. I think, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to one of my favorite conversations, legitimately, no hyperbole that I think I've had uh, in the last couple of years is sitting out on the front porch of the birdhouse at Sweetens Cove. Uh, myself, Randy, Ben, Neil, I believe uh, Ben Shaw of Strapped fame was there. And I yep. think we just were just kind of making some jazz talking about... Uh, we just, just chopped it right up, man. Long form improv jazz talking about the, <laughs> the music industry. Just a completely fascinating conversation. Ben... Uh, I'm sure we'll get into this very unique uh, perspective on this when it comes to publishing rights, when it comes to songwriting, when it comes to a bunch of different things. He just is a, a fascinating, thoughtful, interesting guy. So uh, I thought that coordinated well with you putting out a new record. Uh, you know, you touched on it. I know this is not, you know, not really a golf podcast. Unfortunately, Ben's a much better golfer than both me and Randy. So uh, he has those bona fides as well. Uh, so it's he's, just, a, he's you know, annoyingly right. good. Annoyingly it, good. No, really, no. Really. You guys you just gas me up. Is this, is this a joke? Do I just leave after this? It's like I, I leave just feeling great about myself. This no, is awesome. and he's like, I've been playing for like six years. Like, I don't really even do it that much. <laughs> I try. I, I try really hard at it. I'm not I'm not I'm not I don't want to underplay like I'm working very hard to try to be good and i'm still not very good but i appreciate you guys saying that <laughs> the only downside just to you know balance the uppers and downers here would be uh earlier that day when we were sitting at sweetens cove ben and i got beat i would say worse than i've ever gotten beat in my entire life <laughs> it, on the it golf was course. it was honestly like uh, it was unreal I, I was at some point i just became an observer to like <laughs> history i was like i can't even believe what i'm seeing this is this is the best i've ever seen people play golf ever it was Randy and uh, Brett Waldrip, who, if I may say, I, Brett, of course, a great friend of the program, uh, played like shit on on the bookends of that yeah. round of golf. Yeah. Horrible before, horrible after, and then just yeah. completely blacked out. And, uh, you know, it was just Ken Venturi stuff I from mean, Brett Waldrip. I, I think we got beat. It turned into like a 36-hole match. I think we got beat like 22 down or something oh, like that. Oh, I mean, it, it really, it really was that kind of a number. And I was like, I didn't feel like we played poorly, really. It was just like we just got motorboated. It was like this is – this is a bad, this is a bad round for us. So ben, good, good golfer, not, you know, but it does go both ways. Yeah. What were the stakes there? I forget. What were we playing for that, that round? Uh, uh, I, a, chugging a white claw, I believe was, it was, it was, uh, well, let me step in here. It was, I have never shotgunned a beverage. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. <laughs> never have I ever, that came up and I was like, I just didn't, I, I didn't, I grew up like very straight laced and never shotgunned any beverage. And it was for, it was to shotgun. I think a white claw. I didn't even know how to do it. I mean, I've, I've, I get served the videos on Instagram all the time. So I, I had that going for me, but I was, it was a, it was the first for me. And you, uh, and you did it with a plum. I, I will say you, you performed quite admirably when the time came. Uh, fun fact. The last time I shotgunned a beverage also that time. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, you, you, you've been present for the sum total of beverages I've shotgunned in my life. I remember how much Randy was like sneaky wanting to shotgun. Oh, totally. <laughs> Randy, Randy, Randy was, was like, like, oh yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll bet another one. I bet I can't make this shot. Otherwise I'll shotgun one. <laughs> yeah, it was, was so dying to do it. It really was, was like that. Of excuses for him to lose bets. So he'd have to do it. It became clear that I was going to lose. And so it was just a constant like, what if I shotgun one? It's like, that's fine. You're totally welcome to. I wasn't excited. I was like, I'm not stoked about this. I, I grew up. I grew up on the mean streets of Marymount, where where shotgun. <laughs> you know, we learned at a very early age how to shotgun beverages. Yeah. Oh, uh, never shotgun a beer. You're gonna get many stories, you know, of that and and other sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, stories <laughs> from 
from that's, Ben Records. Give me that's one about, of those as, about as wild strap as it gets, in. sadly. Yeah, if look out. You, if that one offended you, <laughs> strap it in. It's only going to get better. <laughs> well, so going back a little bit to, to kind of, you know, I guess let's just start at the basic level. You are, what would you call yourself? Singer songwriter? Is that, yeah. is that the, the, singer songwriter classification? Yep. I always, I bristle a little bit at the term artist. I, and I feel like singer songwriters like artist light. It's like, Oh, you're like, you're like a working man's artist, you know? Sure. I, I think that's right. I always say the same thing. Randy prefers artists though. So it's, it's you know, <laughs> oh, DJ, no DJ makes me call him a filmmaker. Now, whenever I no, refer to uh, no, him, no, 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 tour. Oh, wow. That is, that's brutal. Yeah, yeah. That's, I'm like, that's, no, DJ, we're, we're just influencers. Quit making me call you an on tour. <laughs> Remember we were doing that bit uh, the last shoot we were on, whatever somebody was asking, like, oh, so what do you guys do? It's like, oh, we should start telling everyone we're filmmakers. That would be, that would be a good bit. So we did that for like a day. And, I feel like, I feel like you could, you could say that. Yeah. Well, we have enough gear now. To yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty viable. Anyways. Anyways, anyways, uh, point being, how, how would you describe your music to someone who's never heard it? Let's, let's get into it. Yeah, here's the best part is I, I'm going to have an awful answer to this question and I have an awful answer for people, which is I don't, I'm like, it's kind of like singer songwriter, but it's really just pop music. Um, and I should, I should be able to give a better answer than that. Sometimes I'll, I'll give an addendum of like, you know, it's like, old pop music with real instruments kind of thing. And it doesn't seem like people are usually too interested in hearing any more than that until midway through usually the round, they like have texted their buddy and then they're like, Oh dude, what's the, what's the deal with this? Um, but yeah, I oh, feel wait, like, no, no, no. This guy's like, he has like a bunch of Instagram followers. No, I'm, now I'm curious about this. Yeah. No, what's the deal, man? You, you like played, you got an agent or what? Uh, no, I think what it really is, is it's probably the best description, honestly, and this is not cool, is probably like what pop music sounded like, like 20 years ago. That's probably that's probably a good reference, honestly. Well, this album, I don't know if we want to move right to it, but it feels like it's a little step towards, uh, you know, more modern music. Is that fair? I think so. Yeah. And I think, um, yes, I feel like I've always liked older stuff and it doesn't that's like the last album was kind of like 80s all the way and this is uh it's not as specific of a time period but you know it's a little, little bit of a 90s vibe in there there's some hilarious features which you guys played a central role in i should i should go ahead and tell this story probably sure uh can i do that yeah of course it's it's on my meticulous agenda but i can uh, i can adjust on the fly well it's, I, I feel like it's also a good representation of what the album is sonic okay so good well please a good lead in. the, the uh, so the, the the two uh um references i made for some of the songs this song snoop dogg is on and it's kind of like a chopped up like piano loop thing if you can imagine that listeners uh and then the other reference for some of the songs was sister act not a joke um that, <laughs> That's that was such a good movie it is. I, 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 it, Hand to God, one of my favorite movies growing up. That so as, one's, as, as, one's the goat, but two's not bad. Yeah, I, 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 the engineer at the session with the church choir, I was like, he's like, "What are we going for?" I was like, "Sister Act." I want this to sound <laughs> like the credit scene of like a movie from like 1990. I don't know what that is for. That's, that's probably a terrible guess. But anyways, so um, yeah, so one of the songs, there are a number of features on the record. They're hilarious. It is Snoop Dogg, Kenny G, Taylor Goldsmith of Dawes fame, uh, and then Dave Koz. And so Snoop Dogg came together. I am, uh, it's Masters Weekend. 
I'm looking at my phone. I've just obliterated my ankle. That's a, that doesn't even matter. Oh, but I, I, I injured my ankle God, very I, badly. God, I forgot about that. Yeah. Cause I, I was nervous that I wasn't going to get to come to Philadelphia for the golf yeah, trip. Exactly. And I was right. like, this is, I, I, I was really worried. And so I, really, and truly my ankle is still not the same. It's been almost exactly a year. And if um, I remember, if I remember quick, quick pause, quick parenthetical in the, in the story here, I remember how you shattered your ankle. Uh, I remember asking you like, Oh my God, you going back to our shotgun conversation you must have been doing some absolute fucking rock star stuff you're like no actually i jumped up with i was on a walk with my daughter jumped up trying to grab a branch and then it just fell so I, I was like, and i oh okay. I, I fell bad man it was it was really bad it was you sent me a picture is truly one of the most graphic images i've ever seen I, in my life I, I sent it to a group of guys i was supposed to play golf with i think the next day and uh, I was like, hey, is this bad? Kind of joking. And <laughs> one of my buddies forwarded it to his friend who's an ankle like ortho specialist. And his friend was like, have him come see me Monday morning. And I was like, oh, this is bad. I, anyway, if, if, hold on. Sorry, if I may. One other thing that just tickled me to no end about this sprained ankle was the thought of Ben with his young daughter and, and him on the ground legitimately in pain. And, and I think he has to like, like the... Ben, you can pick this up, but I think your daughter kind of thought you were joking or, you know, oh, yeah. when kids like they don't understand when, when the parents like actually hurt. And- I, yeah. So I, I, I hit the ground and I knew I was, as they say, down bad. And I was like, I was like, Jane, go get your mom. And she's like, she doesn't, she likes to smooth things over. She wants everybody to be in a good spot. She was like, you're okay, dad, you're fine. <laughs> and I had to get a little stern. I was like, go get your mom. Cause I was like, I, I don't know if I can walk inside well so it was bad I, it, I still the best part is i saw my normal doctor which i never go to him but i saw him like in the in the interim maybe like six months ago and i told him about the injury and he's like oh your ankle's never going to be the same and i was like oh gosh oh, cool, dr cool, cool, peach cool. come on um uh, very similar to the the story that the cat tells right but when he when he was chipping in his backyard fell down blew out his back and had to get his daughter to go get him help it's like <laughs> Just lifestyles of the rich and famous, man. Pretty, like, pretty, pretty much the same vibe all the way around. Um, anyways, I'm <laughs> sitting right, we're back to April. We're, we're back. I'm sitting in a lawn chair outside to enjoy the weather. I've got the masters on my phone just because I'm like sad that I've ruined the next however long of my, you know, mobility. Super and, Tony Fino situation as well. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, probably a little worse, but I get it. Um, but I'm watching the masters and you know, in between I'll get a little bored or like, I don't like the group as much. I'll check out Instagram. I check out Instagram and what do I see? But, uh, a no laying up post and you know, I've got my sound on and I hear this song and I just immediately like it melts my brain. It's like the coolest piano riff ever. And I immediately start like, I'm kind of like freestyling ideas, which that doesn't happen very often. That's not like a thing that happens. Like I hear music on Instagram and I'm like, I'm going to write a song over this. So I texted you and I was like, what is this song? And you were like, Oh, let me check. And you sent it to me. You were like, I got it off music bed, which is a site that I am also on for micro licensing. And uh, I figured if it was music bed, I probably knew the people who made it. Cause it's, I mean, there's a lot of people on there, but it's a lot of people that I would know in similar circles. And so shout out, I, shout out to music bed free ad, by the way, but we get a lot of, a lot, ton of questions. I, I constantly, let me just address them all right now. I get so many 
messages like, oh my God, you got to post a soundtrack for that. Post a sound. What are all these songs? Boom, boom, boom. I'm like, yo, they're, they're all just like royalty free stuff from music bed, man. Music I, bed, I, wish, I wish there was a better answer, but it's, yeah. it's all coming from the homies of music bed. Real quick, Ben, when you say you're on music bed, uh, is, is music bed like using some of your existing songs or are you writing little like ditties and riffs that they know so, no, so, so, so basically music bed has evolved over time and now what's happening in licensing is people are making like there are people have like five bands that are fake bands and it's essentially like they're making this doesn't just happen on music bed it's what licensing is for like commercials and films and everything people are making music just for the purpose of it being used in in media of some kind so when i started out at music bed it was just like oh like put your record on music bed and that's still most of what is on music bed is just like the instrumental track for a song of mine or whatever so like from like a high-end wedding recap to like an online ad for td ameritrade or whatever just anything that's uh and they do they don't just do micro licensing but anything that's licensing that's the deal um i do ghost kitchens yeah well dj loves ghost kitchens it's like so i so the fake bands are like ghost kitchens i for fun i spend like two days a year with some buddies and we have a ghost kitchen band it's just for licensing it's more for like advertisements on tv and stuff but you 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 were dangling me on the rope on about that one the other day by the way i was oh you're on music bed you should check out these guys i was like oh yeah yeah, no (laughs) I've actually used like a couple of their songs. Like, nah, I'm fucking with you. That's that's actually me and my friends. That's me. Like, nah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, and, and honestly, that that part of it is really fun. It's just it's basically like if you're a pro golfer, that's like the equivalent of like entering like a chipping contest or long long drive contest. You like kind of get to do your thing, but there's no pressure and nobody cares. Um, okay, so I hear the thing on Music Bed. I go I go directly to Music Bed. I download the instrumental of this track, and I essentially in that afternoon wrote the song pretty much. And there's like more of a saga where like I ended up working on the track with the guys that had made it originally and added stuff. We added some, well, I added some flugelhorn craziness, all sorts of stuff. But at the end of that process of me writing the song, I was immediately like, and I'm a pessimist, but I was just like, I want Snoop Dogg to be on this song and I think he's going to do it. And that's so ridiculous. There's no reason that Snoop Dogg would want to do a song with me. So I'm, I'm stoked on the song. I sent it to my manager and he's like, well, this is really good. And I'm like, Greg, we got to get Snoop Dogg. So basically, literally my fanhood of and friendship with uh, you guys in the, in the NLU pod is the entire reason that the song Sunday with Snoop Dogg exists. If I didn't, if I wasn't a fan, that song wouldn't exist. And I wouldn't have gotten to do a song with the one and only Snoop D-O-double-G. So here, and then here we are now. How about that? How about That's that? Amazing. I believe it was, uh, if memory serves, I think it's from the tourist sauce band and trails episode. So if anyone's looking for a little Easter egg, there you go. Oh, oh, yeah. And, and I'll already like that, that track had been used in similar videos to that. Like it's, it's a licensing band. So it's not like on the radio, but there's like a couple podcasts that use that as their intro. And so like, it's been hilarious for me looking at mentions since the records come out being like, Oh, what do you make of this? <laughs> There's one that's called like bad look, uh, tough look for Ben Rector. Literally, and or or like people will get onto the podcast like they shouldn't have been using it. There's one about like spiritual motherhood, and people are like, "This is the podcast intro. What's the deal?" And they were like, "We licensed this. We're so sorry." I was like, "No, everyone's cool. Don't worry about it." Uh, I'm surprised you didn't flag that, Randy. That seems like maybe one you have on your on your RSS. 
big randy's i gotta catch up with a lot of my my back catalog well it's just it's covid i think it's just kind of put them behind but yeah uh but yeah so that's the deal so the new record is like there's there's like kids choir church choir uh it's just like a hopefully like jubilant fun music that's that's that, that was the goal with the aesthetic of kind of like a little bit throwback pop yeah that's the deal there there's well, some there's some feels too sorry there yeah yeah because i think uh, as as a not a music you know I'm, I'm not deep in the scene but when i hear just like pop and 80s i think my mind naturally goes to more just upbeat and kind of carefree sure. and yep. I, I really like when some of those songs where i'm like oh ben's getting in the feels a little bit i like yeah and, and and i think you know it's if i'm being real when i say pop i think people probably imagine it's like Katy perry like and it's it, that's that's not really that there's a lot of songs that are more singer songwritery like a ballad or whatever so that's the new record nlu played a huge uh huge huge part in it you guys got me hooked up with snoop dog i'm forever indebted to you for that well i guess let's just pull on that thread while we're here uh okay. how does how does one go about working with snoop dog what just as Mr. as much dog. specificity as you can give sure to that process i think the better yeah well so this and this is this is an aspect of music that i'm not as well versed in there are hilarious features on this record but i haven't really done them and it's not it's not like super common in singer songwriter world to do like quote unquote features um but on this record i was like it just sounds so much sounds like so much fun to get to do stuff with people that i'm a fan of so uh how that one happened was greg somehow found snoops i think he's his day-to-day manager sometimes typically people will have just like you've got a manager or it's like a management company and they're like your team. But sometimes with artists like Snoop or people that are like some like huge deal, like that level, it can it can be a little bit different. They might not have like a management company. They've just got like a guy and maybe like their wife or their husband or whatever. And so uh, Snoop's not like on Red Light or something. Red Light's a large management company. It's just, I guess it's just Kevin. That's the guy's name. So Greg got in touch with Kevin and he's like, first things first, we got to see if Snoop likes this song. And with my newfound optimism, I'm like, he's going to love it. Like sure. Snoop is going to love Which it. It's good. It's good. that it's Snoop's not just slapping his name on, you know, a hundred things a day. Right. It's all totally. about artistic integrity. A hundred percent. And so comes back. Good news. Snoop, Snoop likes it. And I was like, great. And then it was on to the conversation about, you know, money, which is a big deal. And so, this is, this is all of this is out of character for me. I'm, I'm, I'm risk averse. I don't like, I, which I picked the wrong career, but like, I'm not the guy that's like, yeah, like bet the farm. I'm always like, no, no, no. Like, let's be smart about this. So the X factor was at the beginning of this, before we actually sent the money, they were like, yo, so, you know, Snoop doesn't do any redos on this. Like, it's basically like, there's no, like, I didn't like this. Can you do it again? Are you sure you want to proceed? And as, you know, as kind of a control freak, risk averse person, I was like, oh my gosh. But I was like, we came all this way. Let's do it. So it's while him and Kevin Hart were doing the Olympics. And so he didn't do it for like 10 days because he's having to get up real early and do the research, I, I guess. That's what his manager said. I don't know. But he, he was busier than normal. And so uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Basically, I got a text in the middle of the night one night that I didn't receive until, uh, you know, like early in the morning. It was like, here's Snoop's verse. And we had we had made sure he was going to do it clean. We were like, we'll do the no redos, but it has to be clean because we've got, you know, soccer moms who listen to this music, people that are like, you know, 
people of faith who don't want to hear Snoop rap about and things. Uh, just bleep that, that out. Nature. Yeah, things of that nature. And uh, basically, like, yeah, yeah, totally clean. And so I get the rap. I'm nervous. It's like seven in the morning. I listen to it. So he's like, you got me feeling like Chick-fil-A was open on a Sunday. I was like, sick. I, I said that in the first verse, but still pretty cool. And he's like, <laughs> like the legalized touched on that. Right. I was like, you know, that's oh, we should read something else. That's cool. Uh, and he's like, like the legalized green and made it the national blunt day. And I was just like, <laughs> gosh, Snoop, come on, man. I was just like, that sucks, dude. I can't use that. Like, I'm there's like kids gonna rap to this. And so I'm freaking out. I came out here on this computer, on this mic, and I'm just like pacing back and forth. Like, what do I do? I'm like flying his words around and logic. So I ended up rapping what the part that's on the record now. And I was like, Greg, I fixed it. We're good. And then my lawyer was like, you can't edit his rap. That's part of the deal. It's like, you can't take stuff out. And so we had to wait on Snoop to be cool with it. And so we waited another week on pins and needles. I didn't know if he was going to be like, no, nah, man, like I gave you the rap. I'm Snoop Dogg. Don't edit it. And I was like, that's a possibility. There's no take backs. If he just like decides he doesn't want to do it, you can't, you can't get that money back. It's just like, it's gone. So I was like, we already left the money under the bridge, man. What do, you, right. what do you want to do? No, literally. And he was just like, there's no like recourse here. It's just like, you did it. And so I, that whole week when I've like rewrapped the verse and think it's good, but we don't know if he's going to let me use it. It was like a bad week. I was just like, okay, worst case scenario, I'll have a funny golf story about how I paid Snoop Dogg. And then I didn't get to use his rap. Ha ha ha. Sorry, my kid's college education or something. Like that was what it was going to be. So that's the story. But you, oh but you, you guys god. made it happen. Oh my god! How about that? Guy would have been cool if you would have just kind of ransom noted his words up a little bit, all I, out of order. Would have been kind of. A I tried. I well. tried really. I tried very hard. Smile. <laughs> Unhappy. He did, he did do all of his own ad libs. It was pretty sick. Like they're panned left and right. He's like, oh yeah. We 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 left in on the right side. He did like a weed smoke. <sighs> suck in on national blunt day and i left that in just to stay oh, true to it that's so. i think that's bad. important yeah, yeah important very important context yeah. yeah uh man i don't even know where to go from there randy hey everybody randy here again i want to thank another sponsor of today's episode it is a new one and it is bird dogs i am just getting to know this brand and i gotta say it's very exciting as somebody obviously very tall six seven in my case they make pants and shorts that fit me. I can't tell you how exciting that is. But don't worry, they have tons of other sizings. If if you happen to be not quite as tall as I am, uh, their, their waist sizes on their pants run anywhere from 28 to 38, uh, and the length is 28 to 36 inches. So a nice wide variety there. The pants themselves are super comfortable. I've worn them walking around the city. I've worn them traveling. They're great for on an airplane. I can't wait to wear them playing golf once the weather gets a little warmer here in Colorado. They're just the definition of versatile. So I would encourage everybody, check out Bird Dogs as spring approaches if you need a nice pair of pants. And then they have a wide selection of shorts from gym shorts to khaki shorts to swim shorts, anything you need at birddogs.com. And right now, when you go to birddogs.com, if you enter code TRAPDRAW, all one word, TRAPDRAW, they're going to throw in a free Bird Dogs dad hat for you. That's how nice they are. So that's birddogs.com, promo code TRAPDRAW, all one word, and boom, a free Bird Dogs dad hat 
with your pair of bird dogs. You will not take these things off, I promise you. So excited to have them as a sponsor of the Trap Draw. And now back to our episode. Well, all right, listen, let's go back to the beginning of, of the album. The, the album is called The Joy of Music. Obviously, yes. a, a bit of a, a Bob Ross uh, illusion there, I would yep. say. Yep. Uh, talk to me about that a little bit. What's the what's the uh, kind of overall, I guess, the mission statement of this thing? And, and I think that'll launch into kind of some album writing questions at large as well. Totally. So um, the kind of like mantra behind the record, and this also is going to sound super trite, but this is actually kind of like the place that I was at. Um, I probably, I mean, honestly, probably similar to a lot of like golfers you guys talked to. When I started doing music, I was like, I really love this. This is so fun. And then as it starts to go a little better, a lot of other things like crowd in and can take the place of just your enjoyment of it. It becomes like, honestly, it's a grind. It's a lot of travel. There's a lot of like, managing of people and um there's a lot of risks you're taking it's just like it gets further and further away from what you started out loving about it if it goes well because like i love writing songs that's like my favorite thing to do and the better things go the less time i get to spend writing songs because i'm doing like shows or recording or i have to like do pr stuff um and so yeah off like, the I, trap draw cough <laughs> this show podcasts <laughs> with people i hate uh, no, but I mean, yeah, you, you know how that goes. And so basically I had just made peace with like, yeah, like it just isn't going to feel like it did when you're 18 again. Like this is just part of life. Get over it. Like do the work. That's fine. Your ankle, and your ankle's never going to be the same. My ankle's never going to be the same, man. Do so jog how you can jog. Um, but so basically when the pandemic started, I had already made a record. I made like seven songs. We did them in LA at East West, like the coolest studio ever with the coolest band. And then the pandemic hit and I was, I didn't have anything to do. So I just started writing. I, and I, when I'm home, I write every day anyways, but I started writing with like no real agenda. It wasn't like, when am I going to the studio? When am I going on tour? It was like, I don't know when anyone's doing anything. And so the songs that started coming out were just like from a different place. It was a lot more freed up. I wanted to take risks. I wanted to like push my boundaries and I wasn't really as afraid of failing. And so honestly, the record is about me like falling in love with music again. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily only applicable to like guy falls in love with music. It's just more about like, I really fell in love with like the craft and the process again. I was like, I'm doing what I love every day with no expectation. There's no like, cause songwriting had started to become just like the first, first like Rube Goldberg thing. It was like the like domino to start the process. And it was like, oh, if you write a good enough song, that used to be enough. It was like, oh yeah, like this is awesome. What fun. And now it's like, you write a good enough song, then you get to do these other 18 steps that are all like not awesome and kind of wear you out. So that's where the record came from. And it was really just like, I was like a kid in a candy store. I was like, let's get Snoop Dogg. Let's get Kenny G. Let's get a church choir. It was just like a blast, truly. And I haven't gotten to do that because it was always broken up with like, I got to go play a show or I got to go do like a thing. It's just, you know, I didn't have anything to do. So I just come out here every day and do that. It was awesome. Can you, and you don't have to do the, the whole, whole story, but for mm -hmm. folks listening and even my own benefit, can you kind of talk about your history with being a, an artist, a singer songwriter, how it started, how it developed and kind of how the, the path that got you to where totally. we are at present. Yeah. Um, so basically I graduated college in 2009 and that was kind of like 
right, there was like a, a trade-off happening between the old music business and the new music business. It was kind of like in early 2000s and there was Napster and stuff, but it was still like major labels. That was the only, that they were kind of the gatekeepers of stuff. The internet was breaking it up a little bit, but when I was in college, iTunes was really taking off. And so like before the internet, the gatekeeper of getting your music anywhere was a record label. It was like, you're like playing in bars or you're like signed to a label and you're in Best Buy or whatever. And like maybe on the radio, but basically as iTunes took off the number, uh, one of the, one of the biggest functions that labels did was distributing your music that you weren't distributing anymore. It was just like, Randy, you could right now, like do a 10 second rap and upload it to every DSP right now. So basically like, I made records in college. I played like 200 shows while I was in college. Just like every weekend I would go play at like the Kappa Kappa Gamma Walkathon or whatever. And then the next time I'd come back and like play the club or bar in that college town. And so it grew enough to where it was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do for a job. Made records and like would put them on iTunes. And it was a great model for me because if people cared about it, they would go pay 10 bucks for a record and I would get seven of that. And like, that was like a, that was a good model. And there wasn't, there was a, there was a lot higher ceiling than there used to be for independent artists. And a lot more people were doing music independently where it's like, basically just instead of a record label funding your record, you fund it and you kind of like do whatever you want to do. And then it's on you to promote it and tour and stuff like that. So, um, that's how I got into it. And really like with, with the change in the landscape of music and the internet, we talked to major labels on every record, but just didn't end up signing with anybody because it just didn't make sense. And honestly, like singer songwriter music, the music that I make, it was kind of like waning in popularity. Like at the beginning of my college career, that was like VH1, you ought to know, like Jason Mraz and like yeah. whoever else. It was like, it was like James Blunt. Literally, it was like white guy with a cool voice kind of plays guitar. That was like pop music. And I was like, this is perfect. Here I am. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> what, a, what a time to be alive. And then Hello right, world. right, right. As I'm kind of like sort of graduating college, it's like, ah, it's not that cool anymore. And that kind of like, you know, it, it's not like totally fallen by the wayside. It's just not really the main thing that's happening. So those two things happening simultaneously, iTunes kind of like blowing up in popularity, the internet changing the game, and honestly, record labels' willingness to like dump a ton of money into like new singer songwriters. That was like, you know, the, the crossover that was happening when I graduated. And honestly, like things were growing enough for me that I was like, oh, yeah, like I, I want to try to do this on my own. It feels like people like this. And I'm, I like having creative control and feel okay about like funding my career. So let's do it. So really it just grew step by step. And it's kind of like one-to-one -one growth. It was like, if there's a hundred people and they all tell one person it's 200 people, 400 people, it was like that. So it, I think most people think careers in entertainment are always based on like some like lightning strike moment and an explosion. And my career was really just more like, I don't know. It was like a restaurant chain becoming a regional chain, becoming a national chain. It was just like slow word of mouth. And so, yeah, that's, that's really like how we're here now, just slow growth. And like, I've, it's now like in the world of major labels, but I still technically on my label. So it's, I'm still technically independent, but I'm not like a DIY anymore, really. Which I think is really interesting too, in that not to get too wonky into the nitty gritty stuff, but we've talked about, I think that's, 
part of that conversation I referenced earlier was like talking about our business model and yeah. your business model and how like weirdly similar they they almost are and that you you have a you know, you might not be the the most well-known artist on the planet, but the people who know you go really, 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 really deep, uh, which I think is is similar to how we're kind of set up. To- totally. And I remember we had that conversation, I think for me, especially with public stuff, people I think always look at width as the measuring stick. It's just like how many people know about this. And I feel like a great marker for like how good something is, is actually depth, like how much people care about it. And so definitely I would say my career is probably deeper than it is wide because it's like, name recognition like me versus like some dude it might be like i i don't know like i haven't i haven't heard of your stuff as much but when it comes to like shows and stuff like often i will like sell more tickets than like i should or than people who have like a wider profile than me because people are like i I like this a lot which honestly like that that is uh that's like how i'm wired i care more about like i want to do a really good job of something than i want to just like necessarily get accolades or, or whatever. And I would, I would love for people to be like, boy, are you great at this? Like, I, I'm not, I love, I would love to have accolades, you know, whatever, but I more important to me is being like, I hope that I do a really good job of this, you know? Well, I think there's a lot of business decisions that you kind of referenced that we'll, we'll get to in a little bit when we get to kind of some of the record release uh, infrastructure, but yes. uh, going back to a little bit of what you said about kind of trying to fall a little bit more back in love with the craft. Uh, again, I know it's kind of a weird thing to get specific about, but I'm, I'm curious what that process kind of felt like. Was there some friction initially getting into it? What did you do? Was there something specific you were listening to? I, did you feel like an idiot for a while? What, oh, was, man. what was that process like? This is honestly probably the best question I've been asked on this record cycle. And it gets because there's a really good answer for it. So basically, when everything stopped, I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, take a quick break because we were on a tour that got canceled and it was basically like no plans, nothing going on. And so I, when I'm home, I write every work day. I write like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, yada, yada. Well, Monday, Wednesday, Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Work <laughs> days. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Dang. Um, but I think I, I worked a typical three day week, like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> very, very European of me. He's a man of the people. Yeah, man. Dude, come on. Uh, no. So I, I started writing at the beginning of it. And then I was like, you know what? The world is just like completely stopped. I should just try to like rest a little bit. Cause I'm not very good at that. And I made my homework at first. I was like, I love the Beatles. They're my favorite band. I've never listened all the way through their catalog. So like in my day, I would program in while Jane napped, like I'd write some. And then I would like, if it was warm at all outside, I would like sit outside on the roof and listen to a Beatles record. And so I was just like listening, which like I do that, but I don't do it every day. So it started out with that. Like I was like, I'm just going to listen to all these songs and like soak them in. Cause it's weird that I've never done that. And I started doing that with other stuff too, but I was like, I want to become a fan again. And then that kind of bled into my writing where like, I didn't realize how much kind of necessity sort of takes over where it's like, I, I need to write good songs. I need to get the next record done. And it doesn't really come always from a place of just like inspiration, which is fine. That's what a job is. It's not going to, I, music is not a Kevin Kisner. So famously said, this isn't a hobby. You know what I mean? Like this is my job. I want to do a good job of it. But as I was writing, I think what I realized was like, without an outlet for those songs, I was still having a great time. Like I was like kind of shaping the record in my mind, but I was just like, dude, I don't have a deadline on this. I don't even know when I can go in a 
studio and record it, but I was excited to wake up every day and write because I loved it. And so like mechanically, that's how it worked. I listened to the Beatles. I would write. And then like, I'd go home and hang out with Jane and Hillary. And I was like, this is incredible. This is like the best time of my life. And can I ask you, uh, uh, maybe our first like true craft question. When yes. you say you write every day, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Is it the, is, does it mean the same thing every day? What take, take me through the process of what it means when you say you write. Yep. So I would say there's, um, two things that happen. One, if it's like a blank slate, if there's nothing that I've been working on, I'll just sit down and I'll just like start playing an instrument, play like one of these keyboards and just noodle around until something kind of hits me. And the process then would be like, okay, like something feels like it just like catches your ear. What does this feel like? And this is all happening subconsciously. I'm not like thinking this. And then you just kind of start freestyling. Like you're just like, here's an idea for a lyric. Here's a whatever. And at this point, I've done it enough to you're kind of quickly sorting it out where you're like, that's cool. Like that's, that's this part of the song. You know, it's like you're sorting things out. You're putting a puzzle together. So I'll freestyle for as long as I can until I run out of momentum. And while you're freestyling, you're kind of like, this is the end of the chorus, which is typically also a title of a song, which a title of a song is, you know, you'd want something that has enough real estate to where you could say something interesting about it, but it's also like a relatable thing. So if you're kind of onto something, you're like trying to reel the fish in when you run out of line or when you run it, when you're tired, basically I'll stop and I'll start writing, like literally like typing things out, filling in the blanks. And after that, it's just a process of like, I'll play it over and over and over again, like smoothing out the rough spots. Um, so that's starting from scratch. And then what will usually happen though, is like, I'll have ideas kind of bounced around in my head. A lot of this record would happen while I was like taking Jane for a walk. And so I, that's, that's the kind of weird, like, lightning strike stuff. There's a song on the record called living my best life. I was walking and I was thinking like, Oh man, like you would think that having newborn twins and a four-year-old in a pandemic would be the worst, but it's actually like, I enjoy this routine and the kind of ironic phrase, I'm living my best life popped in my head. And I was pushing Jan in the stroll. I was like, I'm living my best life. And I was like, that's a pretty good idea. And so basically I'll whip out my phone, get voice memos app, I'm like, I'm living my bed. And then it's like in my head, the rest of the walk, I'm kind of living my best life. So I'm, you're sort of like shaping out the structure. And that's all I had of that song. I had like the beginning of the chorus and the tag. So it's like, I know from writing songs a bunch that that's where those two things go. It's like, that's the beginning and end of the chorus. Now, basically I fill in the rest of it. So I get home take Jane inside. And then I'm like hammering that out. But that song took a while to come together. So like the next day, what writing looks like is picking up where I left off. I'll, I'll sit down, record myself playing it. So basically like you're hoping to come at it enough times from a fresh place that you're like finishing things off correctly. And like, it's just like, it's like doing a wordle or something when like you look at it too long, you can't think of any new ideas. You got to step away and then you get another you get another try at it, which actually uh, a lot of creative people, a lot of songwriters can be a little bit of a mix of like OCD and ADD, which I am. And that's actually kind of like, it's a disadvantage in some ways, but it's an advantage in songwriting because like I'm ADD enough to where like, I'm going to have 
I mean, a thousand tries to get that song right. Cause I'm like in the shower, I think of it again, literally it's running through my head all the time and I'm reapproaching it, but I'm also OCD enough to where I'm like, I will do, I will try 10,000 times if I have to, to get it just right. So that's what writing looks like. That's the two types of writing that I would do. And sometimes you have a co-write, which somebody would just come over here and sit down you'll talk for 30 minutes and then you'll try to write a song. So that's, that's what it looks like. Uh, possibly unanswerable question or possibly a question you've answered 8,000 times, but uh, what's the mix between kind of science and art as you're saying like, Hey, this is the beginning of the course. This is the tag. This is blah, 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 blah. What, what what's that mixture feel like to you? And then also what's kind of your, you know, when you're, you're deciding whether this is good, worth pursuing, this sounds good, this works, this doesn't work. What's the North star kind of uh, answering that question? So I, that's a really good question. And uh, I think, you've probably picked this up. I think like in analogies a lot. So the best description I have for that is this. <clears throat> so whatever you're into, like whatever your thing is, like a pro golfer could like watch you or I swing a golf club and they're going to pick up an incredible amount of data about our swing. Cause that's what they do. And they know the difference. They know like subtle differences where like I might look at a golf swing and I know some of it, but I'm just not picking up as much information. I think about songwriting and the question you asked, like basically I think about like skipping rocks a lot. This is ridiculous. But like if you're a pro rock skipper, right? All you're doing all day is just picking up a rock and looking at it. Another rock, look at it, another rock. It, I like skipping rocks, you know, but like, I don't know the difference in like an 8.9 and like a 9.1. I don't know the difference. I'm like, I don't know, kind of flat, kind of round, pretty good. But if you talk to a guy that's like, dude, I've been skipping rocks every day for 12 years, he's picking up like a novel of data from each rock that I'm not. And so that's really what's happening is like a huge part of being a good writer is just having really good filters of like, this is a topic or uh, a lyric that there's enough depth and relatability that you can like say something that people resonate with, but you can approach it in a unique enough way to where it will feel fresh. I just think like the deal is that it's just like how you know anything just comes down to like years and years of doing it and being like, oh, this is what makes, this is a really good rock. And I think that's really it. There's also a compounding effect that happens when you get good enough filters, you're only you're only really pursuing, you're only, you're only skipping really good rocks. And that doesn't mean every rock is going to do what it should, but like the percentage of time that you're writing good stuff increases dramatically if you're only skipping with great rocks. And so that's, that to me is like the secret sauce of writing is like a great writer in Nashville that I was writing with one time. He was like, I don't know if I've gotten to be any better of a writer. There's just like fewer red herrings. He's basically just like, I'm only, I'm only starting stuff that's going to be good. And so that's to me, that's the difference in like a good writer and a great writer. Cause like you could have like great facility, you could have great ability, but like you could also chase a bunch of red herrings and it's just like, this is never going to be good. You don't, you don't have a good enough frame to paint inside of. That's really interesting because I, I've always thought kind of one of my next questions was going to be like, what happens when you get in the studio and you're, you have that nagging voice in the back of your head of just like, I don't know, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work, but we're, we're pushing ahead on it. And maybe it sounds like the later you get in your career, you probably try to avoid that uh, situation or tend to avoid that situation more and more. And I, and I think honestly, the, the deal is, it's like a really good, um, 
the better, the better, like central core thing you have, the better every other step of the process will be like part of the reason that like local bands recordings don't sound that good. It's not, people would be like, Oh, it's, I don't have the money for mixing or I don't have like good enough players or whatever. It's like, no, really? Like it's not a good enough song that it pulls itself together. Like, that's why like when someone play, it could be like not a very good bar band, but when they kick into like sweet Caroline, it works, man. And you know why? Cause that song is like just a juggernaut. Like it cannot be stopped. It could be played by like middle schoolers and you'd still be like, bah, bah, bah. like it, it will not be stopped. And so basically like, I think every step of the process is a lot easier where it's, it's like having a repeatable golf swing. It's like, dude, like you could be off. You could be kind of like, not hitting it that good, but you could scrape it around because the face is controlled all the way through the ball. And even if you hit it thin, or even if your timing's off, like you got a good golf swing, you're going to golf pretty good. So basically like if you write a good enough song, all the, the remaining steps from recording to mixing to mastering, you know, all those parts of it are way easier because it's just hard to mess up. And if a song is like not that good, every step after that is increasingly difficult, really hard to get to record a song that's not very good well because you need to put a bunch of stuff in it. And it's harder to mix songs with a bunch of stuff in it because the mixer's like, I don't have enough room. I can't do it with this many stuff. It's really hard to master a bad mix that's got a bunch of stuff in it. It's just like, if you have a good idea, that's going to do all the work for you. We were, Randy and I were uh, on a shoot recently that'll be become public uh, shortly. And I remember something uh, it was with a, a team and something the coach wrote on the board really stuck with me was uh you don't rise to the level of your talent you fall to the level of your systems Ooh, uh, very good. very similar similar uh you know philosophy there which yeah. I, I thought really crystallized it and that's and that's not to say also that like there are good songs that are hard to record but in general the better a song is the more it just like it's honestly dude it's like magic like when when a song is really good it, it literally asks for specific things from each person in the process. It's not hard to come up with a good guitar part for a good song. Cause the song's just like, Hey, like, this is what you do, dude. It's <laughs> like, you can't mess this up. You just come on, like, just, just do this. And it's a not that good song is like a riddle. It's just like, how do I, like, what do you, what does the bass do here? It's like, well, I don't know. But like a good song is just like, you know what it does, man. Like it just fills itself in. Can I, um, Oh, this might be a really bad question. I, I don't know. But when, when you're talking about a great song and, and there's mm -hmm. like an inevitability to it, um, what in terms of like the, the actual music of that song or the lyrics, like mm -hmm. where do you place the most weight? Or is it like those two aspects coming together or what it, help create like that inevitability? Yeah, I think it's it's like a sliding scale where it's like, probably always going to be a marriage of both, but like a huge amount of like magnetism on one side, like the best great example would be like a lot of Max Martin stuff or like that kind of vibe, the like Swedish pop stuff. It's like musical haiku. It's like perfect musically. And it doesn't matter that the words are almost gibberish because it's basically just like so good. So like, Backstreet Boys, I want it that way. Not everybody's favorite song, but it was a huge hit where it's like, it doesn't, I don't know what that means. Fundamentally, if you gave me a million dollars and you're like, what does that song mean? I'd be like, no idea, but it's a pretty good song. And if you look at it, like 
the 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 like melodic structure the cadence of the lyrics the parts like they're all really good and so if if it's like incredibly magnetic on that side the lyrical content doesn't need to be quite as good but generally like for a song to really work both things are going to have to like work together it's a lot like a golf course would be like you know is pebble beach a great golf course or is it near an ocean it's like well honestly it's kind of both but there are there are sliding scale versions of those things to where it's like you know, Pine Valley, what a golf course, not the most beautiful scenery, but it's such a good course that it can overcome that. And there's a lot of courses that are next to the ocean. That's like, is this a good golf course? Like probably not that great, but it's beautiful, you know? And then one semi-related follow-up, uh, you're talking about developing these frames in which you can write and create within mm-hmm. a question that occurred to me when you were talking about all that was at, at what point do you write for the audience as opposed to writing strictly in a selfish manner of something you want to say. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I I think, I think that probably comes down to like a type of artist thing. Cause I think, you know, there's always the like kind of joke and like cred music about like selling out or whatever. I think that's probably a better question for a band that's like super into like avant-garde weird stuff. Cause there's probably a lot of tension for them of like, we want to have people enjoy this kind of, but also like, we don't want to, whatever. I think I, I like, uh, I want it to be creative and good, but I like accessible music and I, it's not, I'm not like mainlining, you know, like Kesha or something, but I'm not music that is like weird for weird sake. Isn't always super exciting to me. Cause I tend to feel like exactly like a golf swing or a golf hole or whatever simplicity is the most difficult thing to do. It's the most difficult art to make. You can, anybody could make incredibly complex, weird stuff. So I don't run into that quite as much because like most of the time, what I want to say and make is kind of what I'm making. And there's definitely the reality of like, I might want to make like a weirder, project or whatever. And there's, I have to be like, I don't know if I want to do that like right now, but it's not the art versus commerce conversation for me. Isn't quite as difficult because I, I like, if you were like, what kind of music do you want to make? I'd be like, I want to make the joy of music. Like that. I wasn't like gunning for fame. I was like, this is my art. It's what I want to do. So that's well on that. I'll go ahead. No, sorry. I was, you know, I, I think DJ, that's a conversation we have all the time uh, within us is just this. And it's such a, I don't know if there's ever a right could answer. Had, could we have had more famous singer songwriters on? For sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but, Come on, man. But we love you. But but um, <laughs> the, the reference soon to be public uh, video that we just shot, right? Like from, a, from an outsider's perspective, I don't know if that has a ton of appeal, but it's something I I think we're constantly in this, like, but listen, it's something we want to do. And and I think, you know, going back to like the depth of the audience, uh, we're very fortunate. And I think we're in a place where if we do something that's like true to what we want to do, we're confident people will come with us on that. And I also think that, I think that that's, I think that's when the best stuff happens. Cause I think like you need to have the filters, you need to have like the aptitude to like make a good thing. But after you have that, I tend to feel like the stuff that happens the most and is like, wow, this is really working usually comes from an earnest place from 
from what I can see both in my own career and like people I know their careers, it doesn't, it's not like a super repeatable thing just to like churn out garbage and it work like that happens, but that's, it, it feels a little more like the lottery. Like, it's just like, yeah, like if you want to play the lottery, like go buy a lottery ticket. But if, if you want to make good stuff, like make good stuff you like. And it's, it's a, it's a legit question. Cause I feel like sometimes people do get a little bit, I think too selfish. And it's just like, this just sucks, man. Like this isn't, this isn't good. Like, but I think if it's really good stuff and you like it, I, I that's usually the stuff that I feel like resonates with people, but I don't know. Folks, it's Randy. One last time. One more sponsor to thank. You know, these these trap draw budgets are just getting out of control. We got to take on one more sponsor for some of these shows, so I appreciate your patience. And I want to thank DraftKings Sportsbook, our good friends at DraftKings. College basketball fans, join the action on the court during the biggest tournament of the year with DraftKings Sportsbook. Turn your team's victory into your own big win. New customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. It's that simple. If they win, you win. And if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still join the College Hoops action with DraftKings Pools. Everyone can play free pools all March long for a share of over $250,000 in prizes. Simply join a pool and answer questions like who will make it to the next round, who will hit the most three-pointers, then track your results. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code NLU. Bet $5 on any college hoops team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. If they win, you win with promo code NLU this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 and over. Restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Thank them for sponsoring the Trap Draw. And once again, back to our episode. Well, going back to, you know, I'm, I'm guessing we're going to catch some whiffs of the uh, the hardest thing to do is, is make something simple. But uh, putting you on your roof, listening to the Beatles. I think the listeners of this here trap draw would, would know, uh, our levels of Beatle love and wonkiness, uh, based on our, our, uh, get back podcast, but what, not to, you know, ask you why the Beatles are good, but what, <laughs> what, like specifically, was there anything that like hit you like a, you know, between the eyes in, on your re-listens that were like specifically, Oh my God, I've never noticed that before. You know what? And I haven't put this together until right now. And this, man, these are, these are legit good questions. You're not dealing think, with a bunch of fucking idiots are, here. Are, not, can I, are you podcasters, man? Are you saying DJ's questions specifically are the no. good ones? Or but because you say that after everyone are, he asks. It's because I'm so excited to answer yours. <laughs> I just go right to it. Okay. okay. Um, no, I think one of the biggest, the, the eye-opening things for me on the Beatles, uh, and I feel okay saying about this because I've, I'm fine with my opinion about it, but a lot of the songs are otherworldly good. Just like, how did you write that? And some of them are just remarkably bad. I mean, so, so bad that I'm just like stunned. It's like w- one person, any person in that room would just be like, what are we doing? This is remarkably bad. And then the next song is like just the angels singing. And I think what I realized is like, I, uh, you know, like I, I want to like optimize things and I want to like try to like do the best I can. And I think that like a lot of things, like everything has become optimized. Like look at a swing from a pro golfer in the sixties and look at them now. Like everybody's like a robot who like knows the data and whatever that's happened in music too. Like people are making like really, you know, they're intensely good at music. They're very effective, but I realized 
if these guys are the best band in the world, which they are, and these songs are probably the best collection of songs by like a band, and they are, what does it say? They're just putting stuff out that is so good and so bad. And like watching that documentary, which is obviously after the, the pandemic or after, sorry, after I'd made my record, but I picked up kind of the same thing in the documentaries they did on the records, which is just like, dude, they're holding this so loosely, so loosely, all of it. And so I was like, oh my gosh, the best band in the world did it this way. Why am I approaching it like a computer? Like just, you know how to hit a golf ball, like go shape shots, man. Like don't quit being like, oh, 2100 spin on the driver needs to be 1987. Like, no, just rip it, man. Like you can hit the golf ball, go do it. And so I think like, honestly, that opened me up a little bit more because I gravitated towards the parts of the Beatles that I liked. And then I'm like plodding through like some record that I don't like. And I'm like, this kind of sucks. And then it's like, whoa, this song's incredible. I'm like, dude, I should just get in there and like be less precious with this and trust my like instincts and the filters that I've developed and not be so like computer guy about it. And honestly, that, that was a, that was a turning point for me. Cause I was just like, yeah, like if Paul McCartney and like the Beatles are like occasionally awful, I'm going to be willing to be awful too. I'm not going to be so stressed about this. You know what I mean? Totally. That was by That's... far the biggest takeaway from, from that doc for me was just like, Oh my God, these guys, no, they're not like, you know, they're not, they didn't map it all out before they got to the studio. No. They're like kind of, kind of stoned it was, and just like throwing honest, stuff against the wall. Like it, no was kinda hard to, it was kind of hard to watch for me a lot, man. Honestly, like I wanted to jump through the screen and punch everybody and be like, <laughs> focus. What's wrong with you? And like, dude, the, the level of like, your the time is of, running out guys. Come on. I know. I mean, for real. And they just be like noodling and kind of whatever. I just want to be like Ringo play the same kick pattern. Come on, man. John, leave or Hello. start or Hello. start playing. And Paul is just like, what's wrong with you people? Yeah. Ben, that, that there is awesome wisdom in, in that in that answer. I, I'm just sitting here like that that was that was really, really extraordinary. And, Thanks, and I man. think yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm not just saying that. I, I think that's honestly I don't know. I, I don't want to like tie everything back to us, but just, I, I know that's kind of the, you know, the, the two sides we're approaching this from a little bit, but um, I feel that a little bit DJ and stuff we do where we don't, I, I think we've been blessed to like not hold stuff too closely or to not take ourselves too seriously. And uh, he, hearing you explain that, Ben, it, it kind of like crystallized. It, yeah. And honestly, what, what's weird is that 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 pattern has repeated itself almost perfectly like i've worked with a bunch of different producers a bunch of different like mixer people whatever especially producers the higher level the producer is truly the like less anal they are about stuff like i went over to england and worked with this like super legendary guy for like we worked on three songs together to see if i wanted to do a record and this is years ago and so I've been used to working with people that are like super tight, super like whatever. And obviously this is a broad brush to paint with, but it, it is true in my experience, you know, the way studios are set up here, it's basically like people have like measured the distance between their speakers and they have them angled perfectly and they have them like resting on foam. So they're like, they're floating and whatever. And I get to this guy's studio, the control room, control room is perfectly isolated. Like everything is like 
precise. They're like track manned out. And so I get to England and like, it's one room, there's this huge old board. And this guy has two, they're called pro acts. That's they're like nice monitors. He's got them sitting on the board. And so we're listening to stuff and he's like walking around the room. He's just like grabs the speaker and just twists it around. And it's like pointing at him now. And I'm like, Oh my God, like, dude, <laughs> some kid in Nashville would just have a conniption. He would explode at that. He'd be like, boom, go, 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 the stereo image. And this guy's literally just like sliding them around and whatever. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And to be fair, also you have to bring, you can't just be sloppy. Like the Beatles were good because they were excellent at some of that stuff. But it's interesting, like, it's almost like you know what to care about. Like, the, those guys at higher levels as producers, they are anal about some things, but it's not the things you'd think. It's not about, like, oh, uh, like, there's, like, a little bit of a rattle in the kick drum. Oh, the engineer might be anal about that. They're more anal about, like, the feeling of the song. Like, this is too fast. This is half a BPM too fast. They have the perspective to say that, where a lot of people who are a little bit lower level hone in way too fast and lose, like, the 30,000 foot view for like, there's a rattle in the kick drum. It's just like, bro, that kick drum's not going to matter if the song doesn't feel right. Like if, if the feeling that this brings you doesn't feel awesome, no one's going to care enough about this to notice that there's a rattle in the kick drum or not. And truly almost exactly the like level of success those producers have had are tied to like their ability to see things from a big picture view, which is interesting to me. Well, I'm, I'm curious on your own perspective, how, uh, how that has evolved over your career, because in, in listening to you talk about this and again, thinking selfishly about what we do and, and then also thinking about the, the Beatles and playing for, you know, years in Hamburg for 19 hours a day and, you know, yada, yada, yada. It almost seems like you, they're, they're almost, I'm, I'm guessing projection projecting. It almost seems like there's an inflection point in your career where you, you hit this point where you, you almost kind of graduate. Right. And it, and it's, you almost hit this, like, point where you can hit a button to almost release some of the the barnacles and and kind of leave behind what's what's important. I don't know if that's been your experience or not. I think uh, to me I think it's it's more of like a sliding scale where it's like I think you have to go through you got to go play in Hamburg for 19 hours a day to develop your sense of like every when Malcolm Gladwell was like, "Yeah, 10,000 hours they played together for so long." I was like, "Man, you should ask the musician because they're not great musicians. What they developed was learning like what mattered in a song and like what what feelings mattered and like you know chord structure that stuff it wasn't that they played you know physically played their instruments for so long because they weren't that great i think to me it's just a sliding scale of like understanding what to be anal about and what not to be anal about and so i am probably too anal i'm probably too up close i'm making like a zillion mix revisions i'm like changing things a decibel at a time like that's real but at this point i am more trying to unwire that part of it and realize like, Hey, like this part doesn't matter as much, but there are certain things that it is absolutely worth like going super deep and being super granular about. I think the difference in me now and me when I was 20 is I hope that I know what those things are, where I was just like that about everything. And now I'm like that really intensely about some things and other things I try to be more hands-off about. And I'm still probably two hands on, but like, I think it's just more about like knowing what Hills to die on and those Hills. It's like, Oh bro, like I'll be here all night making this part. Right. And other stuff that maybe I used to be like, nah, like I need to really make this right. I'm just like, that doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It's a bit like Snoop leaving the blunt smoke in. 
That on that point, I will not compromise. I, I will. I'm gonna have to fix that one. Uh, yeah, and I think too, it's like it's almost like if you get that stuff, if you get the big stuff right, in a weird way, you don't have to worry as much about the other stuff because it fixes itself. DJ, doesn't this remind you of the mindset of the coach that you referenced, who had the saying yes. on the on the blackboard? I mean, it, very much, very much so. It's just the the ability to focus and hone in on what matters uh, feels like one of those recipes or secret sauces that you can take into any walk of life. And if if you get that right, then success will follow. Yeah. And I think that's the, the deal is, I think that is hard to understand is like, it's not just about one thing being better. It's like when when the important things get better, like I said earlier, there is a compounding effect where it's like, oh, now you're more productive because you're wasting less time on stuff that doesn't matter. It's like hones itself in if you're doing the things that matter, right? Well, I wasn't really explore, uh, you know, expecting to delve deep into the exploration of the theory of creativity, but this has been a uh, a thrilling conversation. I, if you got some more time, I'd love to ask a couple more questions about the. Uh, the actual process of, of putting an album together, putting an album out, all of all of those things. Let's do this. So first question, how do you know when it uh, when it's time to to start an album and what does that process look like? Um, it kind of depends. I have the last couple records before the Joy of Music done it in two batches just because what will end up happening is like if I'm not recording the songs immediately, I'm kind of like a lot of my RAM is taken up tweaking little things about the songs. And so it's helpful for me to like clear out my CPU and be like, okay, great. Like I went and recorded those songs. Those are gone now. I don't have to worry about them anymore. Um, and then I would do the second half of the record. Cause I found that, like I said, I get less efficient. You know, I might have like, I don't have actually have like an open items list of songs. There could be like 20 songs. I'm kind of like fiddling with. And the truth is, not a lot of those 20 songs are probably going to be like, this is the best song ever. And so if my Ram is taken up messing with a song that isn't that great, it's better for me just to like kill it and be like, I'm done with it. So um, when you know to go record, I don't know how to really gauge that. I feel like usually when you start writing, you kind of like have like a couple temp poles or maybe even like foul poles where it's like, here's the bounds that this record's going to be like, this is as far this way. This is as far this way. And, um, you start to fill those in a little bit. And like, that's a process too, where it's like, Oh, Hey, there's a lot of upbeat songs, maybe lean into some more like thoughtful, like interesting, like introspective things or vice versa. And when you kind of have a good mix of those things that feel like they belong together, usually it's time to go record those things. But for me on other records, it's usually been in two batches. Cause when I didn't do that, my creative output slowed down a lot because I was just spinning my wheels on like working on the arrangement of a song that, you know, is like song 12. And it's like, I don't need to worry about that. I need to like, my time is better spent trying to come up with like better stuff. You, you try to write songs off the record. So uh, yeah, that's, that's as probably as good as I can put that. It's just, you kind of start to have a sense of like, Oh, this is like a body of work. Let's work on it. Record it. And for, for, you know, people who have never recorded an album, Talk to me, like get nitty gritty. What is, what is the process of of that like? So you have a song that you've written on at home on the piano behind you, yep. uh, and you're taking it. Okay, now we're gonna make it for a record. What is mm -hmm. that? What is that like? 
Okay, so um, a lot of people now will... So basically, everybody has recording software now. It used to be like recording equipment was super expensive and only like really nice studios had it. And so you had to go in there, block out time, record. Now, like everyone's just doing stuff on their laptops with like software, software instruments and like singing into whatever mic. Um, but I've purposefully tried to stay out of the demoing your own songs game because I feel like I know myself that I'm a little bit too OCD to be able to not worry about like I want I'm going to want to go all the way and then I'm going to spend like 10 years being like passable as an engineer or producer. It's like I don't want to do that. I'd rather just stay good at what I'm good at and then go work with someone who's a great engineer and not like have those streams cross. So what will happen is I'll write a song when I think it's done. I'll be like, okay, like this is good, but still part of the writing process for me. Like I'll probably play a song like a hundred times more than that. I don't know, working out the arrangement and that arrangement is sort of like, I'm working out the parts in my head where it's like, it'll be like drums that sound kind of like this. This is the pattern. This will be the other instrumentation. Uh, and I'm just kind of like tightening that in my head. And then basically I'll go in uh, to a studio, usually with like a producer that I like. Um, that that's more important than the studio itself. It's more important for me to be like with like a person that I can work well with. So the guy that I worked the last couple of records on his name John Fields, very talented guy. And the joy of music is a little different because it was all made remote. But like what would before I did that, basically I'd go up to Minneapolis with half a records worth of songs. Take living my best life, for example, I come in and I'm like, this isn't actually what happened because we did it on zoom, but if I had done it in real life, this is how the other songs happen. Uh, I've worked out the tempo of the song. Like that's tempo is really important. That's like, that's one of those sneaky things that like a less experienced person is like, yeah, about this fast. And then they're like, why isn't this working? And it's like, cause it's too BPM too fast or too slow. So like I will have played a song like I said, probably a hundred times, maybe 200 times. And I've like played it to a click and how the vocal sits is really important. Like how the delivery is. So basically like, okay, this song is at 98 or 98.5 BPM. Like literally like you start, like you'll do half BPM stuff, whatever. 98.5 BPM, turn on a click. I'll go in and I'll play like piano vocal just to get a map of the song. You got a piano vocal, sweet. And usually what you'll do is you'll kind of like rough in some other stuff just to basically be like, here's like the shape of the song. And if you're going to do it with a live band, which is what I usually do, you, you don't want to get too much stuff on there. You want to leave room for like what's going to happen. Um, you get a band in there, get the sounds going, get the drum sound the way you want to. Everybody gets their instrument sounding good. Uh, you give them direction, some amount of it. Sometimes I'm like, play exactly this thing. Sometimes I'm like, this is the shape I like get their ideas and then hone it in from there. You do live takes of the song, play it through like six times. And inevitably, like some of the ideas you had won't work because it'll be like, oh, like this snare drum in this room just doesn't communicate the same as I thought it would. So let's try another drum or we're going to change the drum part a little bit. So you get all those parts congealed well. You troubleshoot the areas that aren't working and the band goes home. And John and I will sit and edit and it'll be like, ah, uh, yeah, let's like, I like this feel better. We'll fly it in. Uh, actually, let's take the bass out of the second verse, mute it. And then it's just like piece by piece doing all that stuff um, layer by layer. And after that, usually him and I will like add other stuff. Um, 
And then it's just a zillion rounds of like little imperfect tweaks where it's like, you know what? The sample we used for the kick drum was better than the kick drum ever was. Let's just take the kick, the recorded kick drum out of this and just use the sample. Literally, you're just honing all the instruments in like that. The last thing you do is usually vocals. Um, I used to do this differently, but now I sing a song like three times and that's it. Cause he's usually gets, that's the best uh, stuff. And it kind of gets worse after that. If there's a part of the song, you need to redo a bunch, sing it a bunch. The only part like that for me, usually will be literally like the first line. And that's because like, you're all in your head and it's, it's a very, uh, um, in the studio, there's not a lot of inherent momentum, but in, in front of people, it's easy. Like you're just in like a flow state. So like you're swinging free, hitting the ball good. But in the studio, it's like, You've like got like the the swing dots on you. You're like mapping your swing and thinking about it weird. So uh, what 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 I do to to outsmart the first line jitters is I will at the end of it if we don't have it good enough I'll run the first verse or just with a click and I'll sing the first first line like twenty times just like over and over and over and usually a couple of those will be unconscious and it's like that's it that's the one and so usually what's happening in the three takes vocally is like I'm keeping track of each take in my head and I'm like second verse is best and second take so we'll go in you comp the vocal and that's it and after that it's mixing let's get into mixing okay <laughs> so I'm uh, like on the edge of my seat I'm like yo yeah exactly. what's mixing uh, okay great <laughs> So mixing, uh, I yeah, you know what this is, but I feel like I'll have to like explain this. Like, okay, so uh, you take the recording, and basically, let's say uh, you could have like seventy-five tracks, and each one of those tracks is like one microphone or one input. So, like on a drum set, there's a microphone inside the kick drum, there's a microphone outside the kick drum, there's a microphone on top of the snare drum, there's a microphone under the snare drum. So like just to mic a drum kit, you could have like a dozen mics or more. There's you got room mics, all that stuff. So basically in the production process, you've kind of made that stuff sound the way you want it to. I've, I've picked the blend of microphones that I like to represent the drum sound. So you've kind of mixed a little bit already and that gets into like, using effects like you're using compression and reverb and like EQ, all that kind of stuff. You're treating almost think about like an Instagram filter. You're putting an Instagram filter and effects on each channel, each one of those 75 channels. And basically like you, you arrange it to where it blends together correctly. Like the bass isn't too loud. It's just loud enough. Like you're coloring the sound the way you want it to, but Typically, it's helpful to have somebody who only mixes do it because that's all they do. And they got a bunch of crazy tricks, like real mathy, like truly crazy stuff. They'll throw stuff out of phase to make it sound like it's like far, like a wide stereo image. They'll like pan stuff. You know, you've in production, you've panned stuff left and right. But like mixers just have a bunch of real slick tricks to like make stuff sound great. So basically you send all your tracks, your 75 tracks to some guy, Tom Lord Alge mixed most of this record. He's like a legendary guy mixed like all the songs you love. Um, you call Tom or your manager calls Tom's manager. We'd love to have you mix some of the record. When's Tom free? Tom's free. You can do it in three weeks. How much is it going to be? It's going to be this much. Oh, that's too much money. Okay. Maybe we could work this out. Okay. Uh, mixers typically get points 
percentages of the record on the back end so they can do well if the record does well. You work out all that stuff. Your lawyer, his lawyer, you figure it out, right? Then you email Tom the session. Tom pulls up the session and he's, you know, he's got his tricks to make everything sound just right. And so he works on it and he makes it sound a little bit better. And Tom sends you the mix. Hey man, I, I think it's done. Sends it to me. I listen to it. And I'm like, Tom, uh, uh, the song heroes, he makes the song heroes like, ah, Tom, man, you put too much of a kick sample in. And I liked, so basically in the recording of heroes, we had like Aaron's kick drum. Sounds good. Then we had this huge, like marching kick with like a calf skin head that he hit real soft with a mallet. There's a ton of low end. It's like, and it's what sounds awesome. Tom didn't like that as much. And it's more like a punchy kick drum. And I'm like, yo, Tom, I need you to blend some more of that big marching kick in. I want it to sound like just rattling, you know, my soul. Okay. Okay. I can do that. But that across everything, it's like you're blending too much of the close room mics in. I need you to blend more like compress the, the, the big room mics, bring those up a little bit. Also the vocal verb you picked, can you make it just a little bit longer and take maybe like some of the low frequencies out of it? I want it to just soar. Like you're like moving stuff around, but tiny, tiny bits. So you go back and forth. For me, it's usually like four revisions, could be as many as like eight. That's a lot. Or if they really nail it, it could be like two revisions. So basically, like you're making those tiny tweaks here and there. It's done with mixing. You did it. Awesome. Now it's got to go to mastering. Proceed, proceed to step three, which is terrible. Mastering is awful. Oh man, so, there's another step. Oh, dude, it's never, this is never ending. And this is like, if I could explain how much this is cliff notes, even though it doesn't sound like it, this is like cliff notes of cliff notes. We, we could talk for an hour about the treatment of the kick drum on Heroes. I could, I could go through plugins. I could be like, <laughs> we could go as deep as you want to go. Oh my so, gosh. So you got your mix, right? It's gone from 75 tracks, they bounce it down to just two tracks left and right. It's like what's coming in the left side of your headphone and the right side of your headphone. All those things smash together, right? So used to the mixer, it would still be kind of quiet and you'd want it to be like real loud because the scientifically loud stuff sounds better. It's like, that's not like a joke. It's literally like your brain perceives volume. Like the louder it is, the more detailed it sounds, the better it sounds. So everybody's trying to make their music as loud as possible. But now enter streaming services and all that's messed up because you give it to them, they just turn it right back down, which I'm just like, then why on earth are we still mastering music? But anyways, the mastering engineer does the same thing the mixing engineer does, but he just does those two tracks. So instead of tweaking just like the kick drum or the hi-hat, he's making changes to like the whole sound. And so he's basically like compresses it a little bit, brightens it up a little bit. And he's also trying to make each song sound about the same level wise. So you, they master the songs. It kind of sucks. It comes back sounding a little bit. You got it sounding just right, man. You got it sounding just the way you want it to. And then this guy, you know, who's the best mastering guy, like went and messed it up a little bit and, or, or he might've made it better. So basically like you do less revisions on mastering, but you might need revisions on mastering because the moves are bigger. And like, this is where it gets real weird. Like, They'll chop off the low. The only way to make stuff louder, fun physics lesson, is to remove nuance. So picture a waveform, like little peaks and valleys. The only way to make stuff louder is to chop off the peaks and stretch it all out. So basically there's less nuance. It's like the waveform goes from looking like a heartbeat, beep, 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 
to just like a turd. It's just like a solid block because mastering guys smash it so that it can sound, everything sounds like loud all the time. So in the only way to do that is to remove little parts of it and you can lose some of the vibe there. Like they'll, you know, chop off a bunch of the low end to make it louder. And you're like, Hey man, it sounds too tight. It sounds like, it sounds like you've just like cut off a bunch of it. We need to get some of that back. So you're making like little adjustments. They send you the master. You did it. You've got a master recording. We're on to step four? Yes. Okay. Now you take all your masters, right? Now at this point, you got your record. Congrats. You got 13 masters. You go and you Can load I them. Real quick. Yeah. I, I the fact that anybody would ever make an album of more than like four tracks is just beyond me at this point. Yes. This Imagine whole, coming out with yes. you know Chinese democracy or uh, or uh, something like that. Just some massive track list. It's just as, it's crazy. As, as you guys say, some real sickos, man. It's like it's these, some these real are, sick people involved. Is this real sick people involved? Is this part of the optimization? with technology like was this some of these processes simply not available back in the day yeah so basically okay. back in the day everything was literally tape so it's like essentially people would mix the record like pretty much they wouldn't always do it in the studio but like there was less control and like if you wanted to make a change now like you can just like bleep bloop like open up the session and everything pops back up. If you wanted to make a mix revision after the fact, you might not never, you, you might never get back to the same place you got it to. Cause right now everyone is, you know, a lot of people use like plugins for mixing. And it used to be like, everything was physically like the kick drum was running from this channel on the board to this compressor, to this compressor back in. And then it was all blending together. This is getting too deep. In, at the master bus, which is basically like all the tracks getting smashed together, then that creates some of the sound as well. Like all those things are like mixed. It's like making like gumbo, like that roux is like, everything's all mixed together. Now you can like scientifically go and be like, Hey, can we make the, uh, the roux a little darker and a little saltier, like reverse engineer it. Like you can do that. When the Beatles are making records, it's like, Oh no, like we can absolutely not do that. Like the gumbo is made. And like, <laughs> You could, you people were mixing records then, but like the specificity and like the detail you can go into, it's just way worse now because you can, you can control everything. And like, yeah, that's it's always been like this a little bit, but technology has enabled everyone to like go a lot deeper. But I mean, so, like, there's there, Steely Dan's albums, like, dude, like, I mean, you know, but there was, there was, you were making more permanent decisions. Like people talk about queen, the drums sound so good. And then they're like, well, they sounded like that. Cause we had to keep like adding vocals. And so the drums were kept getting like put onto other tape and they got more and more compressed every time because like literally physically the recording was like that it was less and less of the tape and it was re-recorded every time from tape to tape. So they sounded that compressed. That was just like a function of like, if you want to keep adding vocals, we're going to start losing a little bit of this sound. Now there's like, you could, you could have a thousand tracks if you want, you could do it endlessly. And there was just more physical limitations back in like those days. So I don't want to fill you with existential dread here, but uh, I, as a journalist, I need to ask, how do you feel after everything you just said for the last 12 minutes, how do you feel that most people now are just gonna be like, Oh yeah, no, I mean, I just like watch it on YouTube like, <laughs> through the speakers on my phone. Oh, dude, dude, that's, that's, and that, that, that is part of it for me is like, Oh no! Like that's cool, man. Like that's cool. But, yeah, I just listen to it. I'm, I'm, like I just oh, turn no. my phone and, up. 
really oh, dude, loud. My phone's got pretty, like really good speakers. It's a new phone. It just came out. Not a joke. The, what, I, the, what I've just spelled out for you is everything going right. There's been many times on records. I did this whole process and then started over on a song because it wasn't good. Or we got all the way to mixing and I was like, this isn't good enough. I'm gonna have a whole nother guy mix this. And then another guy. And then another guy. Like, dude, it's endless. But on some level, you know, you hold both of those things loosely because you're like, hey, sometimes stuff really matters and you got to fight for it. And sometimes it's like, nah, man, like this is details. Don't worry about it. Uh, the hope is that, that the core thing is, is going to be preserved in any setting. But the better you do it, the better, it, you know, a really good song with a good recording is probably going to sound pretty good on an iPhone. It's going to sound good in headphones. It's going to sound good on like a $10,000 stereo setup. So some of that is just like the craft and you want to do it as well as you can. And some of it's like kind of matters, man. Like the, that, that mastering tweak that I made on like whatever song, like it actually sounds better on iPhone speakers because of that. It's just, but it's, it's an endless process of knowing what's important and what's not, especially at the end. It's not, it's not great. Are you a, uh, are you a wonk on how you listen to music? Like, do you, do you have to listen on specific headphones or are, are you like a big audiophile guy? No, I've actually purposefully tried to listen to music the way that normal people do. I'll listen to a song like on my iPhone because I think the more that you, the more that you make things with that filter in mind, the better it is. And yeah. it's like I don't ever want to make music that's like, well, you got to listen to it with like this setup because it's like, dude, no one's going to hear it like that. So right. it ne it needs to work on your iPhone. And so I because of that, I try to take music in normally, but like. I mean, I'll listen on nice stuff sometimes, but I try to I try to approach music as a fan. You know what I mean? Randy, you got any questions? Otherwise, I'm going to keep moving. Uh, no, I kind of cut off the, um, the the process of the album here. Okay, so we've got oh, that's we've it. Got, we've got all of our master tracks. We're ready to go. We've got the name. We're not even. We don't even have time. We're not going to get into the, the artwork. No, no, we're not going to get into the track listing. We're not going to get into any of that stuff. No, don't do that. There's a lot of music videos. That's a whole other yeah, don't do whole it. other thing. Don't do that. We're not even. That's another podcast. Yeah. So now we want to put the record out. Uh, yep. This is an eight-hour conversation, but no, it's in like four minutes. Uh, how does licensing, publishing, uh, things of that nature? How do those? Uh, how do those shake out for you uh, as as all your tracks are finished and mastered and and ready to go? You're ready to put the album out into the world. Okay. Start the timer. Um, the publishing is the IP of a song. So it's not the recording. It's just essentially like the idea of the song. Um, so that's separate. And then the master recording, the 13 masters we have, that's the other side of it. So basically that's your master side and that's your publishing side, right? So um, you load the songs. If you, if you wanted to do this and you weren't going to sign to a label, a label would do this for you. But if you don't sign to a label, you go to TuneCore or DistroKid and you literally just upload your music and they will distribute it to the DSPs, Apple Music, Spotify, yada, yada, yada. Um, you work out a release date, then the real job begins of like, okay, like figure out how to like tell people about this album, et cetera, but we're not getting into that. So basically like that part is relatively easy. The X factor is after you've gone to this painstaking, like deep effort, each streaming service like ingests it differently and they have their own algorithms for like, what they're going to make it sound like. So it essentially gets mastered again by Spotify, by Apple, by Amazon, by everybody. And it's literally like a crapshoot. Nobody, the best masters in the world can't really tell you how it's going to sound. They're just like, hope you like how it sounds. Like Spotify will like turn it down 4 dB. Oops. So sorry about that. 
Apple Music will be like, oh, like the bass sounds better, but doesn't on this song. It's just like you have used and you can't control it, man. You're just like, I came all this way and now you're just going to like do whatever. So uh, so now you got your music on iTunes. You got it on Apple. Let's say uh, somebody wants to license it. Somebody wants to like use it, whether that's like in a Toyota commercial or like on a video for the No Laying Up podcast. Uh, usually they would head to your publisher and be like, yo, we want to license a song. Let's work something out. But I own my own publishing. I don't have a publishing deal. Um, and I've decided to do that because it's financially beneficial for me to do that. And I don't need the money that they would give me to subsidize my like writing career. Yep. Good. For context, what, what split of artists kind of do that? What, how, is that rare? Is that common? It's, it's, it's rapidly changing. I would say similar, it's similar to record deals. Like probably most known artists it's more common for them to have a publishing deal and to have a record deal, but less and less. I'm, I'm probably a, you would assume if you didn't know me that I was on a major and that I had a pub deal, but I don't, but that's not, it's not like that's completely unheard of. It's more common than it used to be. But like most of the time people will have a pub deal or a label deal. Um, and I've kept my publishing and my master recordings because I keep all the upside. If you sign to a major label, They'll give you some money, but they own that asset forever and you'll never get it back. It's just like if you sold your podcast and they're like, cool, like we'll take this forever, but we gave you a little money. You'd be like, no, I want to hang on to this because I think it's going to do good. And then we get so, into the Taylor Swift conversation. Exactly. That's what I was going to ask. Are you are you angling to sell all this to private equity one day? Is that the <laughs> is that the play? I, 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 I sold my old records to private equity already. Really? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. A, a, a joint venture between uh, Morgan Stanley and a Canadian hedge fund, which is now called Tempo Music Investments. That's How about that? God, that might need to be another podcast. Holy <laughs> smokes. I, I love oh, that I you asked that thinking I was going to joke about it. I was like, no, no, man. All, 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 all like indir- indirectly part of Team Rose. I mean, with all, Morgan the, Stanley. all the people that, well, they don't own it anymore. All the people that are, you're seeing sell their catalog, it's like, that's what everyone's doing. Every, there's all, there's a bunch of banks rushing into the space and like investment sort of like groups that are like buying up music. And so all the musicians Why? are like very sick. Why? What's, what's yeah. in it for them? Thank you. That's what, yeah. Why? Why? So, uh, why? 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 Um, I'll tell you why. Basically they've run the numbers and they feel like streaming will continue to grow in popularity. It'll be more and more profitable and it's, they're going to create, um, funds or the ability to invest in music and the returns will not be correlated to the stock market at all at all sorry uh so that that's their pitch they're basically like this isn't oil it's not an asset forever it's literally just like throwing off cash flow and it's not tied to anything and that's appealing to them and then i think honestly just like anything else like it kind of got hyped up with the rise of streaming and basically everybody was like oh we want in on this so they're all coming in and offering like what feels like kind of crazy valuations. So if I was, if I had signed to a label, I couldn't do that. I couldn't sell. And so, because I own my own stuff when they were like, knock, 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 do you want to talk to us about this? I was like, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, that's why they're doing that. So I don't remember what the question was. I think oh, it was man. why. Yeah. So why? I think you nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you nailed it. Uh, okay. Well, I do want to talk. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, I do want, that makes a lot of sense on the, the publishing and the upside there. I, I do want to talk about the marketing aspect of it a little bit because, uh, you know, internet, man, total game changer uh, <laughs> in the space. And I, I think that uh, 
it's just been interesting watching, you know, obviously you're a friend of mine, so I'm watching it much more closely than I would like, you know, if X band put out a record, right, right, right. but talk to me about, you know, you got to kind of put out one single at a time. You got to slow drip stuff. You're doing a film for this. Uh, you're, you're trying to make sure you're on, you know, certain Spotify playlists. Like talk to me about some of that and how it's kind of changed for this record versus maybe 10, 15 years ago. I would say, I mean, it has changed more in the past, like two or three years than I feel like it changed for a long time before that. Um, yeah. I mean, basically streaming has changed the game and you're doing everything you can to get on the best playlists you can, um, marketing, et cetera. Like, I mean, in general, you're just doing, you're, you're trying to do your best to tell all of your fans and people who are peripheral fans that your music is out and they should check it out. Um, but I mean, it, it's changed so drastically. I don't think anybody knows how to release music anymore because at the beginning of Spotify really taking off, they reward singles the most because basically the idea, like the bummer for an album is like, so I just released 13 songs with like, I released a few ahead of time. The bummer is the songs that are towards the back of the album just aren't going to get a shot to like get good playlisting. Cause there's just like, you're dumping too much onto the service at one time. And so the service is really going to pick like two songs. So like, Oh, these, these two songs are pretty good. We'll like put these in algorithmic playlists, which are, those are playlists that people don't curate. It's just like a computer makes them. Um, so, it's super uplifting. That's that's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, real real feel good story. But basically, people would put songs out one at a time because you essentially got to give every song the best chance to like do good stuff. So when you release one song on Spotify, Spotify's got the chance to put it on editorial playlists like Good Vibes or whatever. And there's also algorithmic playlists like Release Radar or like Daily Mixes or whatever. Um, and so each song is going to get a chance to like do well and get the biggest audience that it can. And so the idea with doing one song at a time or like waterfalling or dripping stuff out is basically you're hoping to build your listener base every time. And people felt like, and still feel like the best way, if you're just into it for like monthly listeners on a streaming service, that's the best way to do it because every song that hits is going to get put out into all of those spheres. It's going to hit all the playlists that it's going to hit versus if you dump, eight songs at once on Spotify, like I just did seven of those songs are only going to be heard by people that are like, I'm searching for this song. I want to hear cliches with Taylor Goldsmith. I can't wait to hear that song. Otherwise like cliches is going to be like track 10 on my record and my fans will know it, but like people who are peripheral fans might not go that deep. So the idea behind doing one song at a time is you give each song a chance to do well. So in this current ecosystem, I'm curious if you compare and contrast these two things that, you know, I remember you you put out, um, well, you've kind of put out like some other singles. I know you have holiday stuff. And so you've mm-hmm. kind of done a bunch of different stuff. I'm curious of the things that have kind of popped, like the things that have, have done the best. Yep. How does it correspond with how you feel about the song in your head versus how it, that correspondence used to be kind of before the algorithms took over? I think, uh, I feel good about my gut feeling on what people will like as far as like, if it was like, Hey Ben, like rank in order people's favorite songs off of this record. I feel like I could get kind of close to that. Maybe not, but that part of it is usually like pretty close. That's like the skipping stones conversation where it's like, Oh, I think people are really going to like this rock. Um, 
But I guess what I'm trying to get at is how much of it is outside of that control. You know what right. I mean? Like how so, much so, of it is connected between those two so, things. So, so basically, and, and kind of the bummer of like what music is now is essentially like there are certain types of songs that like are just never going to get that wide. There's never going to be like a wide song. Like there's a song of mine called men that drive me places that is a favorite, of a lot of my fans, but I knew the minute I wrote it, it's like, it's never going to be probably on the radio because it needs to be on the radio. Like it needs to be a certain kind of song. Um, so it's probably never also going to be like super playlisted because like, if it's not like an acoustic love song or whatever, like they don't have playlists for like great songs about the meaning of life with a piano. Like <laughs> if they did, I'd be like, this is probably going to do pretty good on that playlist. So you're essentially playing like two games. One game is like make the best art you can that you just think people will love. But then you also are a little bit playing the game of like, what can I do that I love? That's going to fit a little bit in this hole. That's like, this is a song that could be on the radio could also be playlisted on Spotify. Like when I wrote living my best life, that's, that's a, that's a good, like both worlds thing. Cause I think it's, it's unique enough that people will be like, this is kind of funny. And I like it that it doesn't feel like total, like awful, just garbage, but it's also universal enough, both in its like aesthetics and also like lyrical content that I could see it fitting on radio or like a number of playlists. And, as luck would have it, Spotify shined down upon me and put me on a bunch of playlists that were good and radio stations are now starting to play the song. The only issue is like, there are songs that I actually think, Oh, like probably the general public might like XYZ song more. There's just not an avenue for it. No one is ever going to play men that drive me places on the radio. It's just not going to happen. But I think if you made everybody in America listen to that song, they'd probably be like, this is a really good song. And that's kind of some of the bummer of like, just like every other industry, there are fewer and fewer decision makers and there's a lot less nuance. So you're just getting like, you're essentially getting the bomb and gouge of music is what you're getting. Where a long time ago, you're having people shaping shots like James Taylor, sweet baby James wouldn't see the light of day now. Like he, he could be 18 right now and release that song. And it would be on like today's singer songwriters. If you had a good manager and nothing would ever happen. So that's a little bit of the bummer is just like, you're, you're kind of playing both of those games at the same time. And you, you have almost no control over what works on a playlist or doesn't. That's just like thumbs up. Hope that it kind of gets lucky. Yeah. Infinite accessibility to publishing with no control over what pops. Yeah, is is a cool place to live. Super, super cool. Yeah. Well, that feels like a uh, you know I always like ending on a down note. That feels like a, that feels like a good spot for me. You got any questions for us? No, I want I want, I want to play golf again sometime. Randy, you, Randy, you're coming to the show in Denver, right? Hell yeah. Okay, well, we we should we should try to play golf before then. Would love that. I, and I I was gonna say uh, I apologize for not doing it up front, but uh, Ben Rector Music dot com is where folks can go you have on the internet it's on the internet uh you have www.benrectormusic.com you have vinyls there available of your new album uh you have all the tour dates there uh just a lot of good fun information if people want to check that out yeah anywhere else question on that what's what's the what's the most lucrative way a fan can support musicians is it is it buying a concert ticket? Is it buying a record? Is it streaming? What, yeah, it's, what's the... it's it is um, in order. It would probably be buy a vinyl, buy a concert ticket, 
stream music. But honestly, dude, I feel like what people don't, this is the most inexpensive thing for them to do when they like something being like, Hey, like I like this to their friends and followers, dude, that's like, that's more valuable than any of that stuff. Cause that's, I mean, right now the record is like growing faster than other records. And that's just because people are like, boy, do I like this record? Like that, honestly, that's super helpful. And I think people don't realize that, but people that have like, I got a hundred followers every time someone like posts a story and it's like, I really love this record. Here's why it's like probably 50 people saw that and they're like, Oh, cool. I might check that out. Yeah. I think like, if you're like all about supporting buy a vinyl, that's huge. And a concert ticket also, I mean, concert tickets probably more lucrative than a vinyl, but there's more cost involved. Rainer, are you going to buy a concert ticket? Or are you going to no, Ben told me, oh, give me one. Yeah. Ben, ben told me, give me one. So <laughs> right, he, he, he was really nice about it. He was like, should I get a ticket or should I just grovel? And I was like, you should grovel. <laughs> and he's going to claim the gas shortage is why he can't buy a vinyl as well. A good conscience. 100%. So, and well, I don't pay for the Spotify like premium. So I just, I don't know. I just watch on YouTube, man. I, I <laughs> no, I feel like, I feel like people are super kind when they ask stuff like that, but I'm just like, on it. That's you can do whatever you want. <laughs> Ben, this was a, a true, true, true thrill. Went a lot of directions I wasn't expecting to go, which is always, I, always a thrill to talk to you. I feel like this is, this is deep, deeper than I expected to go, but I enjoyed it. Dude, yeah. Honestly, truly great questions. Mostly you, DJ. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I agree. Darn you. Darn you. <laughs> I knew that was the case. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll echo what, what DJ said, man. I, uh, Ben, you're smart. I didn't even know you were that smart, man. Uh, I've known you now for a couple of years and... You have great wisdom, and I love hearing you talk about the the craft and the process and, and what matters and what doesn't. So I thank you very much. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who